Well, there's another fucking podcast, and I think it just began on your smartphone. Welcome, folks, to Sondheim on Adderall, or should I say Sondheim on Celsius. I'm enjoying a Celsius energy drink, but one of those uh, energy drinks that are somehow not as bad for you. Who knows? Who knows how this will all end up in the future when we find out that we're all dying from Celsius disease. Change of plans. I know I announced at the end of the last episode, for anybody who gives a shit, I I was going to do a bonus episode in between the Into the Woods and the Assassins. That bonus episode regarding the Sondheim anthology shows, such as Side by Side by Sondheim and Putting It Together. Now, here's what happened. I was going to get that done this week that just ended. And I didn't get it done. And then last night, which was Friday, I uh, went and saw a production of Assassins. And it seemed dumb to not talk about Assassins today because it's fresh in the mind. Now I'm going to tell you something. This production of Assassins, even though it was uh, featured on the front page of a certain ubiquitous theater ticket app, and they charged $60 for premium seats, it turned out to be more of like a community theater situation, Um, which is fine. I think community theater is the backbone of whatever. But um, I don't know. It's weird to go into someone else's community and see community theater. This was sort of uh, on a... uh, in a uh, city peripheral to Los Angeles. I'll protect their om- anonymity here. Um, so yeah, Assassins. Went and saw it. And listen, I'm not anti-small theater productions. I think some of the best musical theater happens in intimate 99-seat spaces, which this was not, so I don't even know why I'm saying that. This was uh, in a large space. Anyway, I'm not going to give any more uh, details about this. I was surprised by how angry this production made me. I, it turns out I'm a little more sensitive about Assassins being done right than other shows being done right. And I felt that, um, I feel like part of me wants to report them to Musical Theater International uh, for the changes that they made. To the text, by the way. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spend my time haranguing a community theater production, but you know, God bless you. Go your merry way. Do your show. That's fine. But I do want to talk about it because it's fresh in my mind. And you know, a couple of things from that show may come up. Assassins, 1991, arguably the last good Sondheim show. If you don't like Passion, which I do not. However, there's a good argument to be made that I've never given Passion a chance, and there's a decent chance. If I do a second season of this podcast and I talk about the shows I haven't talked about, I might even start with that one because I found myself curious about it. And I wonder if maybe, um, since I'm staring down the barrel of 40, I may uh, be more interested in passion and what passion has to offer. More interested than I was in middle school. So, let's get into it. I have seen Assassins three times in my life. And I've been in it once. Somehow, all of the versions of Assassins I've seen have been amateur community theater or like college productions. Most of them anyway. I did see one that was more professional. But this is a show 
that, uh, I mean, it doesn't get done, obviously, as much as other shows, for obvious reasons, if you know anything about it. And if you don't know anything about it, let me uh, fill you in very briefly. Assassins is a show about all of the people that have assassinated presidents or have attempted to assassinate presidents. Or let's just say most of the people. Let's not even say most. Let's say nine of the people. Because they leave some out. Um, somehow, every time this show gets done, it's a show that directors love to project their vision onto. Like, it always happens. Because it's kind of sparse. And, um, you know... There's there, and because there we've had some American history that has happened <laughs> since 1991. Directors like to go into this thing. Same thing with Cabaret. I've noticed. You ever notice how the end of Cabaret? Th that's the, that's always the mark of a director. They always have some idea about how to end it because the ending is ill-defined. The original Broadway ending is different from the Alan Cumming revival ending and all sorts of different endings. So people like to put their mark on it. I saw a production of Cabaret once where there was uh, like a march uh, through a concentration camp and then the words uh, never again up on a thing. So uh, things like that. And especially like the end of Assassins or really all the way through, people like to um, toy with it. Monkey with it! And this is not always great when this happens. Now, when I saw it at the college, for instance, uh, and this college also, I should mention, is on the outskirts of Los Angeles in a uh, peripheral neighborhood, uh, city, whatever. They try to do this, like, light versus dark thing with the proprietor and the balladeer, where the, the proprietor was always following them around doing dark shit, and the balladeer was following them around being like, hey, don't, don't be violent. Um, and nobody really knows what to do with the proprietor, really, because... The proprietor sings the entire first song and then disappears. So people like to uh, turn the proprietor into a symbol. And um, the revival from the 2000s, they, you know, did they they made the, they had the balladeer double as uh, Oswald, played by Neil Patrick fucking Harris. Um, when I did it, uh, the the fellow playing the proprietor, he played nearly every single side role. Like every time there was a president. Or, like, even the little boy. He just was in every scene. Like, uh... I don't know. Now, when I did this show in 2016, I played John Wilkes Booth. I enjoyed myself. But one thing that kind of struck me when I saw the show last night is that, uh... This podcast is not that unlike what Sam Bick was doing with his little tape recorder. So I think that maybe spiritually I am uh, Sam Bick. The guy that is sitting in a car talking into a tape recorder to virtually nobody. Um, but uh, I guess sending them to celebrities. Let's get into it. I think I said that already, but now we're really going to get into it. Um, after a couple of corrections from last week. Uh, I made two dumb mistakes, which is a sign of um, this thing uh, getting sloppy as we reach the end of the season. I referred to Joanna Gleason as Joanna Newsom at one point. My bad. Joanna Newsom is that uh, indie artist that plays the harp that sounds like Lisa Simpson and was in um, Inherent Vice as an actor. 
Uh, apologies to the Gleason estate. Uh, Joanna Gleason is alive. I apologize for apologizing to her estate and not her personally. I also referred to anyone can whistle as anything goes. This happened twice. I caught myself on it once, but um, apparently I did not catch myself the first time. So that must have been frustrating. I'm sorry for doing that to you, and I hope that you've uh, you've been able to recover from that. Oh, let me be Ira Glass for a minute here. This episode contains a number of offensive words, some of which have been bleeped, but some of which will go unbleeped. If you are listening with children, please send them out of the room and call social services on yourself. Because why are you listening with children? Why are you why why are you and your children gathered around a podcast like it's a 1940s radio hour. L l put on PJ masks for them or something so they don't have to go through this. They don't give a shit. And you're a bad parent, frankly. Assassins, 1991. Best entry point for Assassins, if you're not familiar. Original cast recording. Very important. Don't fuck with this revival from the 2000s. Don't listen to that album on the Spotify. They're both on the Spotify. I imagine they're both on the Apple Music. You know, that revival, it, it's fine, but it's not as good. Trust me on this. There is no video. There's no filmed play of this. There's no film adaptation. This musical probably never could be a film, and if anyone tried to make it into one, I wouldn't want to see it. Assassins is pure theater, folks. This is theater. It's... Uh, it's been called Neo-Vaudeville. Sondheim calls it a book musical masquerading as a review. That's interesting. It's really both, in a sense. Now, in a big sense, what Assassins is, is not a Sondheim musical, but it's a John Wideman play that Sondheim put some songs in. It's a play with music! Which is why it does feel anticlimactic to have this be the last one, because even though this music is very much Sondheim and it has Sondheim's style and stamp and brilliance in it, I feel like this one belongs more to John Weidman. And John Weidman, if you're not familiar, he is a he collaborated with Sondheim before this on Pacific Overtures. He wrote the book to that one, a show that we did not have an episode on. Also, after this, he wrote the book to Roadshow, which we're not going to talk about because I know next to nothing about Roadshow. Um, John Weidman is the American history collaborator for Sandy. Sandy? What? What's happening? He is um, every, Pacific Overtures, Assassins, Roadshow, anything, anytime anything involves American history and research, John Weidman comes on board. Roadshow, by the way, had several versions. Uh, it was called Wise Guys. It was called Bounce. And it's supposed to be like a, in the style of a Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, uh, the, the Road 2 movies. Not interested. I apologize. Um, I don't like when Sondheim does old-timey pastiche, like I said. I mean, I do like it. It's better than when most people do most things. But for some reason, this one never made me curious enough to grab the music and read about it and think about it and hear it. <laughs> um, and also, maybe just I was getting, I, I, I was out of my Sondheim phase by the time. Roadshow was a consumable thing. When I was really into the Sondheim shows in middle school, this was like on the horizon and very exciting because it starred Victor Garber and Nathan Lane. Both uh, Sondheim favorites. Victor Garber, of course, is in Assassins. We'll talk about it. I was curious about John Weidman. I was wondering what he's done outside of Sondheim stuff. Apparently, he did write the book to Big, the musical, based on the movie Big. 
and he wrote the book to that show Contact, which I never saw, but my understanding is that show was all dancing. So I don't know. Um, that sounds like uh, a cushy job. He just says, uh, dance sequence, blackout. That's all you got to write down. Most recently, the, I mean, the most recent thing Weidman, who is still alive, has done was in 2009, a musical called Happiness. And now that made me excited because I was like, did they make a musical out of Happiness, the Todd Salons film with Philip Seymour Hoffman? I want to f*** you so bad you'll be out of your ears. I bet you I just bleeped some of those words because um, it just got weirdly pornographic here on this podcast. I apologize. I was just quoting the movie, everybody. Get used to those factory whistles, folks. Because this is a racy one. This is a uh, <laughs> this is a controversial episode. I don't even know if it is yet because uh, we're only a few minutes into it. But I imagine some words are going to fly around. Let's find out. Okie dokie. So my journey with Assassins, folks, is I read the script first. After seeing images from it in the book... Uh, the Sondheim Coffee Table book by Martin Gottfried looked interesting. Bad idea to read the script on this before hearing the music. Tonally, it does not come across on the page. I was excited about it because I was like, ooh, this is dark, and I like things that are dark. <laughs> um, but you really need the, um, the bright melodies to contrast with the darkness. Which is kind of what makes it brilliant, the way that um, the beauty and simplicity and sweetness of some of the songs, like Unworthy of Your Love and Ballad of Booth, contrast with the darkness of what's really going on in them. So don't read the script without hearing the music. Don't ever do that, by the way. Don't do that with musicals. We've talked about that. Sondheim talks about this endlessly. Lyrics are not meant to be read. They're meant to be sung and heard. So knock it off. Except he did release uh, two volumes of a book with just his lyrics printed, so I don't, I, I don't know what to do with that. It's a bit of a contradiction there. One thing that was helpful, though, about reading the script is that in the front you got a character list with descriptions of who's who, which president they killed or tried to kill, and what era it was. That's helpful. And uh, if you're an American history buff, this show's going to be a lot of fun for you because it's pretty historically accurate, except for, of course, all of the avant-garde intersections of the characters together and the blah, blah, blah. But um, it's pretty faithful to the facts. I got the CD of Assassins, original cast recording, for Christmas when I was in eighth grade. I remember this specifically. That would have been Christmas of 1997. And I went deep into that thing. I had already read the script, like I said. And... Um, this was one where I, I didn't need to meet it halfway. Right away, I was like, this is awesome. This is amazing. Weirdly enough, I got the CD for that, and I got the CD for Bye Bye Birdie, the TV version with Jason Alexander, because I was in that in middle school that year, and I wanted to hear it. So, like, um, those were my two CDs for that, uh, the winter of 1997. Also, um, I remember I was listening to Assassins when... Uh, I was invited to go see Titanic. I went and saw Titanic. 1997. Big year. Uh, I think when I was in my 20s, I would have told you that Assassins was my favorite musical. Because, um, you know, if you, especially if you're a young man, I think that this is the kind of content that's going to get in, be interesting to you. Um, maybe. And I got cast in it in 2016. How old was I? 30-something. 
Uh, it was a non-paying community theater production, and it was a two-hour drive from where I lived. And that was a bit of a, a sacrifice for me, but it was a labor of love, man, because I love assassins. And uh, I, I am a pretty uh, self-deprecating person, and my self-deprecation may be a mask to hide my uh, egomania. But I will tell you that I do think that this, my performance in Assassins in 2016 was the first time I felt that I was actually good acting wise. I think that I kind of like taught myself how to act doing that show. Now, if you're a friend of mine and you're watching, you're listening to this podcast and you saw that show and you uh, disagree, don't let me know. I'm not interested. <laughs> if you thought my acting was bad, um, you know, fine. You're entitled to your opinion. Leave me alone. I want to tell you some uh, pretty... I, I want to give you a bombshell of information in, uh, about uh, another connection that I have with assassins. This is a big deal. It is to me. It's not that big a deal. It might be. So, um, like I said, assassins is about all of the people that have successfully or unsuccessfully tried to assassinate presidents. And it goes... It spans all the way from the assassination of Lincoln by John Wilkes Booth all the way up to the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan by John Hinckley. And I have exchanged emails with John Hinckley. Not the actor who played him. John Hinckley, the attempted assassin. That's right. We've emailed. To explain, uh, John Hinckley... <laughs> Uh, he had a conditional release in 2016, when, where uh, curiously or coincidentally, when I was doing Assassins, he got out and there were pictures of him going to get a sandwich. But last year, 2022, he got an uh, unconditional release and he took to Twitter. John Hinckley was on Twitter. And at first I thought it was a parody account, you know, I was like, what's happening here? This was before the Elon Musk ban on parody accounts that didn't really work. But um, I was like, is this really him? He, and he had pictures of himself um, look, you know, looking old and playing the guitar, just like he does in this show. And he said that he was looking for band members because he wanted to start a band. <laughs> and he was looking for uh, anything, uh, bass, drums, keyboard. He like listed all the, uh, all the things he was looking for. And I said, well, God damn it, I play the keyboard. Just for fun, uh, let me email John Hinckley. He put his Yahoo email address right there in the tweet. So I was like, hi, John. <laughs> uh, I play the keyboard. Perhaps um, I could play in your band. And he responded to me. He said, hi, Chris. Thanks for reaching out. What city do you live in? I said, I live in Los Angeles. Never heard from him again. Apparently, John Hinckley doesn't live in Los Angeles or anywhere near it where it would be convenient for us to be in a band together. But now I have that, uh, I have the bragging rights that I've emailed with John Hinckley. So, you're welcome. There's, uh, Assassins has an inactive plot, I would say, um, or it's a bunch of sort of smaller stories, but there are some themes that we're going to talk about. And before we talk about these themes, you may have noticed if you're a longtime listener of Sondheim on Adderall, my politics are terrible and unpopular. And I'm not a conservative. I'm not a right-wing conservative by any means. Um, I tend to get worked up about politics. Uh, I would call myself a far-left person, um, definitely left of the Democratic Party. 
if you subscribe to the horseshoe theory that if you get extreme enough on the left and extreme enough on the right then you meet and you're both uh, extreme and you should be ignored then you probably don't like my thoughts on anything and I make a huge effort and I fail most of the time to not talk about my political takes because he, I, I don't I, I trying to have the humility to understand that I don't know anything I do like to listen to debates and political podcasts and the point of view that resonates most with me are the ones that are classified as far left I think that like my ideological heroes would be like Noam Chomsky and Cornel West I'm less into the identitarian stuff but I also hate people that use the term cancel culture um I don't know. I don't have any deeply held beliefs that I don't feel that they could be challenged and I wouldn't change my mind. And I love having my mind changed. I love hearing the best expression of the opposing side's perspective. And I know that a lot of people, especially more recently, say that there are there is things that there should be no debate about and that there we should not both sides things. And that's true. But it's not always true. There's subtlety. See how tiresome this is? Like, do you see how this is going to be a shitty episode? Because I'm going to be saying things like this all the way through. Because it's a musical about American politics or American presidents. Fuck it. So, yeah, I like debates. I don't like the debate me bro vibe that, you know, you find on YouTube and so on these days. But I think there's value in standing face to face with someone you disagree with, even like harshly disagree with. And you have a having a better argument to them, which is preferable to... Shutting them down, deplatforming them, whatever, you know. Um, hate the Democratic Party. I voted for them in the general elections uh, the last uh, few times. Every time, really. Except for the 2004 election when I was too drunk to uh, figure out how to find a voting booth. I think the closest thing that like defines what I believe may be democratic socialism, but uh, I don't like the aesthetics of that because uh, it sort of conjures up the idea of a beardy white man in a flannel shirt, which uh, I do have a beard and I do often wear flannel shirts. So there you go. And I was often told the, you know, that that's what a Bernie bro was or a democratic socialist was until I went to Bernie rallies and I saw uh, a great deal of diversity and uh, positive whatever. So there you go. <sighs> I don't know anything about anything. I try to divorce all of my takes from anything partisan. That's all. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. Assassins is not political. And uh, it's just a show about the, the people who assassinate or attempt to assassinate and the, the, the why of it. When I was younger and I thought that Natural Born Killers was a good movie, I no longer think it's a very good movie. I watched a featurette on the uh, DVD where they were interviewing the cast. And I remember Tommy Lee Jones said something that, like, if, if someone says, oh, I don't like violent movies where it's just shooting, shooting, and violence, I thought, like, okay, Tommy Lee Jones is articulating a really good response to that, where he's saying, you know, he Oliver Stone doesn't make violent movies. He doesn't make movies about violence. Violence. He makes movies about the hearts and minds of violent people. And there's a real draw toward that culturally, obviously. Um, with the Scorsese and the Tarantino and everything, and more recently murder podcasts. Uh, and everybody is kind of fascinated with the why did you do it, Johnny? People want to know. Do they really want to know? It seems like people might not want to know as much as they wanted to know in the past. Maybe not anymore. 
I, I know that we're all still drawn to the horror of the story, but maybe less interested in digging into the what and why. I heard uh, that there was like the History Channel a few years ago had a new special documentary about Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler. <laughs> and um, it was... It's what distinguished it from other ones was that it went into his childhood and went over the, like but then like there was a big backlash to that and it did not air because they're like we don't want to know what made Hitler 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 is a monster end of story nothing else to talk about I'm of two minds about this and um I am not uh, Jewish. I'm not uh, in any subjugated group. But so yeah, I, I, I do feel like on the one hand, yeah, there's value in digging in, but also I can imagine being a family member of a victim and hating the anti-hero glorification of this or seeing your fucking like daughter's murder on 2020 or, you know, even just seeing people get a macabre thrill from the story being told. Um, that would bother me, I think. Um, there's value in understanding why and I thought it was stupid when people got mad when the Joker came out listen the Joker isn't real I should tell you that um, but they said like who cares about the white rage and the white tears and the plight of the disposable white man who thought he was entitled to the American dream which is pretty close to what Assassins is about and even on the left even uh, Slavo Žižek the uh insane whimsical philosopher um, said uh, it's about the social psychological genesis of the Joker uh, and that you you cannot account for this in any way like these type of people that do things like that they are a miracle and that the majority of people do not become the Joker even if they suffer in the same way and that's true you know I read a great book about Columbine um, that debunks the whole idea of the trench coat mafia and the fact that they were bullied which is the prevailing narrative of columbine even now like i think i think that's what most people think was happening with those two columbine shooters and it's not true like they were not really being bullied they were not really part of an actual trench coat mafia and it's it's kind of scarier if it's unexplained we, we don't really know why i mean we know that the one got influenced by the other but why did why maybe it's scarier if there's not an answer and so we tend to look for answers i don't think this show really does that i think that um it doesn't really find a unifying reason they all have different reasons and they recite them towards the end in another national anthem it gets close to having a unifying thing with the everybody's got to write the right to be happy where's my prize but you know, John Wilkes Booth and Leon Jalgaj are the only assassins that, you know, only assassinations that were politically motivated, except maybe the Kennedy assassination. Who knows the truth? <laughs> we're going to get into that later, but I promise I won't be annoying about the Kennedy conspiracy theories. I promise. Assassins, the musical. So we got nine assassins. We're including the attempted ones, but crucially we're leaving out a lot of attempted assassinations we're keeping in the four that were successful which are abraham lincoln william mckinley james garfield and john f kennedy not in that order i flipped the two middle ones 
Now, this is not a history podcast, and I should tell you I did not really go beyond reading Wikipedia, and look, I made a hat for this one. And uh, I don't know uh, any, I don't have any special uh, revelations about anything, but I think it's fun to reconcile the show with the facts about these people, and briefly touch on some of the assassins that were left out, because some of them actually were written in originally. So we have the attempted assassination of Teddy Roosevelt. It was while he was out of office. It was originally included in the musical, and in an early reading, the assassin... I don't know his fucking name. Can you give me two seconds to find this guy's name? Okay, it's John Schrank. Uh, like uh, Lieutenant Schrank. That's <laughs> the same name. Who cares? Anyway, so he shot... Teddy Roosevelt, um, it was originally included, uh, Christopher Durang, interestingly enough, was playing the part in, the, in an early reading, and it was supposed to be very funny. If you don't know Christopher Durang, he's mostly a playwright, but he acts sometimes. He wrote uh, The uh, Sister of Mary Ignatius Explains It All to You. Um, my favorite of his was Laughing Wild, because um, you, you, you get some monologues from that if you're a young actor auditioning for things. Um, but he himself, even the real, like said, this is like too silly and lightweight for the rest of the piece. Because apparently Shrank, his reason, he said later for shooting Roosevelt, was that McKinley told him in a dream to do it. But they thought that maybe it was like, uh, you know, a little too, uh, too silly for the, rest, the tone of the rest of the piece. First uh, assassination on a attempt on a president was Andrew Jackson, also originally included. But they decided that this guy was too much like Charles J. Gateau, who is included in the final edition of the musical. Interestingly enough, like when this guy tried to shoot Andrew Jackson and missed, and Andrew Jackson beat him with a cane. <laughs> hey, remind me to talk about bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson later, since that's uh, somewhat uh, related. Let me make a note of that. Uh, talk about bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson, the musical probably uh worth talking about why not uh yeah truman a couple of attempts on him uh israel zionist gang and then also uh puerto ricans a couple puerto ricans uh that was also politically motivated they decided that it wasn't it was like too political and they, they, the characters weren't as psychologically complex so they didn't include them this is where jimmy uh, jimmy carter was almost killed by a drifter named raymond lee harvey Ooh, what the fuck? If you're going to give somebody that name, you know, you got to assume they're going to kill the president. Well, they certainly named him before that happened. That was a stupid thing for me to just say. I'm going to cut it out. Maybe I won't. Maybe I don't have time. Uh, interesting factoid. Since the show came out, assassination attempts since 1991, uh, pretty uh, skewed in favor of assassination attempts on Democrats than on Republicans. Obama and Clinton, we got six attempts per a piece, and uh, only two on Bush and only two on Trump. Probably because one side has more guns than the other. Can we agree on that? Maybe not. I don't know. The process of making assassins. Uh, the year is 1979. Sondheim is on the board of something called the Musical Theater Lab which is committed to finding new musicals by unknown writers. Young fella comes in named Charles Gilbert Jr. He's got a musical called Assassins. 
Sondheim says, oh, that's a great idea. He doesn't even know what he means by that. He doesn't even know what the show is about. He's like, huh, a show called Assassins. I like it. This is a show about a Vietnam veteran who goes nuts. There's some mysterious ghost figure called the Fat Man that's talking to him, and he's telling him to kill a president. Now, throughout uh, the show, there's quotations punctuating each scene, uh, quotations from historical assassins, and the opening scene of the show is a shooting gallery that has a sign that says, shoot the pres and win a prize. So Sondheim and the board, they see this musical, they're like, okay, well, this isn't very good. Uh, we're not interested. Thanks, 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 Charles. Uh, good luck to you. Ten years later, Sondheim is hanging out with John, Wise, John Weidman, and he brings it up. And John Weidman is like, wow, we should do that. <laughs> or we should do a musical called Assassins, but it's about assassins and not this guy's idea. But we got to call this guy up because we're taking his title. And we also want to use that thing, the shoot the pres and win a prize, the shooting gallery. So let's call this young man, this Charles Gilbert Jr. They call him up and he says, sure. As long as I can keep, you know, trying to put my version up, go ahead and use all that. And to this day, when you do Assassins, on the marquee, it's going to say, based on an idea by Charles Gilbert Jr. So there you go. It's similar to Pulp Fiction. They had to say a story by Quentin Tarantino and some other dude, I forget his name, because he came up with the idea of the gimp and the whole thing. So they start by doing like all Assassins through history, starting with Brutus assassinating Caesar. Uh, but goddammit, there's too many to sort through. We can't cram all this into a fucking musical. So let's narrow it down to the American ones. And this is really cool. The first version has Dan White in it. The guy that killed Harvey Milk and the mayor in San Francisco. That did the Twinkie defense. We've all seen the movie Milk. You know, the, 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 uh, Josh Brolin as Dan White in that movie is very good. But isn't it a shame that they did not really dig into the Twinkie defense. The fact that this guy said that he was eating too many goddamn Twinkies and it made him go insane or fucked up his blood sugar and so that's why he killed them. Isn't that a pretty important part of that story? I know it's not as important as Harvey Milk's contributions to the cause. I get it. So in the first draft, they finally decide, okay, let's just do American presidents. Fuck, that's like even the American assassins is just too many to fucking get through. We're gonna do people who assassinated American presidents, and then they even whittle that down to just nine. They put in the ones that they have to put in, that's like uh, the ones that, first of all, the ones that were successful because you can't avoid those, but they kind of whittle down the attempted ones to, I guess, the most theatrical, the most interesting. First draft, they're writing it. Sondheim is doing his usual lazy, fucking slow thing that he does. He's a slow writer. He needs to sharpen his black wing pencils. He needs to lie supine on his couch and maybe uh, play chess with himself or with his butler or maybe make a new puzzle and uh, invite some friends over and play it with them. In the meantime, Weidman is writing the script. Now, usually when he works with a book writer, uh, the book writer sends him the first couple of scenes he's written. That gives Sondheim an idea of where the thing is going. Then he starts to write songs. And as they're going along, he's like an hour of showtime behind the book writer, right? So by the time the book writer is into the second act, Sondheim is midway through the first act or finishing the first act. Now, for some reason in this case, Sondheim never asks Weidman to send him any scenes and Weidman never offers. And Sondheim spends a long time writing that opening number. Everybody's got the right. 
Now, he's on his way to his country house in Connecticut. Sondheim is. How about a country house? And that this is when Weidman sends him the first draft. And it's the entire thing. He's written the whole fucking book. Start to finish. Wow. That's unprecedented. Sondheim hanging out in the country, in Connecticut. He starts to read it, but he says to himself, Hey, Sondheim, don't expect too much, baby. This is just a draft. You know, maybe, uh, you know, don't uh, have too high expectations. However, this first draft knocks his goddamn socks off. This is a quote from Sondheim, and I quote it because I agree with it. I think this is a good assessment of Weidman's book. Sondheim, quote, All the scenes were assured. Where they were supposed to be funny, they were hilarious. Where, were the, where they were supposed to be surprising, they were jolting. Where they were supposed to be straightforward, they were touching. And that's true. It's a great fucking book. One of the best books of a musical, let's say in the last... Whatever. It's a good one. It's up there. We don't need to make lists and hierarchies, do we? Later, Weidman told Sondheim that he was drawn to the material because he had been 17 years old when Kennedy had been killed, and it was the first time that he felt real loss, and that he couldn't understand how one pathetic little asshole could cause universal grief and anguish. Or why? And according to Sondheim, and look, I made a hat, he said, that is what Assassins is about. One little angry motherfucker getting up on his hind legs and fucking everything up. <laughs> or getting, you know, uh, causing universal grief and anguish. Um, structurally, one thing that is so smart and effective about the script is how it saves Lee Harvey Oswald for the end. They originally opened with it. And the setting of the whole show was going to be the Texas Book Depository. But the fact like you're watching this thing and you're invested in these stories and these characters, like when Lee Harvey Oswald enters and you realize where he is and who he is, the audience gasps because they forgot. They were like, oh my God, this is the most important one. And nobody has said a fucking word about it in this two hour experience. And here it is. Side note, they apparently wanted to do the show in the Texas Book Depository, like do a little run of the show there. That is a terrible fucking idea. <laughs> That's really scary. I would not go see that. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so like I said, this production that I saw last night, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time shitting on it because uh, God bless him. We're making theater, and people are going to see it, and that's a good thing. But they made one choice in this that was total fucking bullshit. There were no guns. There was a director's note, and I knew this going in, by the way. Uh, morning of, I'd bought the tickets a few days ago, and I a few days prior, and I said, uh, read some reviews of this production and um, first sign of trouble was that there were only local reviews in these little gazettes of the city um, but it said it, the, their main criticism was the fact that there were no guns and I thought like yeah that's dumb but you know I'll maybe we can get past that it was Shailene my girlfriend's first time seeing it so I said just so you know apparently they don't use any guns in this one but 
you know, guns play a pretty big part in this. I didn't even realize until like a third of the way through the show how devastating it is to not have guns in this. Completely fucks it up. And they use all these different things like, um, like instead of a shooting gallery, it's one of those things where you get the mallet and you hit the thing to see how strong you are and the thing goes up like in a carnival. There's got to be a word for that, but I can't put my finger on it. So they use the mallets as a metaphor for guns in some places. They use little finger guns, like their hands make a finger. Like, what the fuck is the difference? They don't change the dialogue. I mean, you can't change the history. I mean, there, there were... these. All, most of these stories involve guns. If not all of them, I think. I mean, yeah, guns! And there was a director's note in the program that, you know, it was so predictable. And I knew what it was going to say before it even said it, where it was like, since we've all gone through countless tragedies, Columbine, Sandy Hook, Pulse nightclub, and so on, so on, so forth. And too many to name, too many mass shootings. We could not reconcile the communal experience of theater with the act of having guns on stage or pointing guns at you know, the audience or the fellow actors. So we decided to take it out. Fuck you. Then don't do the show if you're uncomfortable with guns. It's a show about assassinations. Art is supposed to disturb the comfortable, comfort the disturbed. Uh, not, not at this theater. They're like, ah, no, let's just, let's, let's comfort the comfortable. Let's pretend there were no guns. There's some pretty good things about this production, though. I don't want to say it was all bad. I mean, the, the, w there were a few good things, but let me just say up front, the little boy was brilliant. <laughs> this little boy has a future. Now, in my first episode of this dumb podcast, I did West Side Story, and I just sort of off the cuff uh, said, let's go song by song through this, and then I realized two songs in that that was a stupid idea because all I ended up doing was saying this song was great and now this song was great I think it's worth doing in Assassins and in newer versions of Assassins instead of a list of songs in the program there's like a list of songs and scenes because it really is it's uh it kind of is a review or it's a book musical disguised as a review but um you know the scenes are as important as the songs and they inform each other and blah, blah, blah. So we're going to do that. We're going to kind of go piece by piece through this thing because it's going to bring up other issues. And we're going to talk about the actual history of some of these things. And we're going to talk about, yeah. So in this show, Sondheim finally gets to use different musical styles for different eras, which is something he kept threatening to do in his career. And I know he did this in, like, it's not like an old time Follies pastiche kind of thing where it's all just the old timey songs. But um, he wanted to do this initially in Merrily We Roll Along, then decided to just stick to a general musical theater style. He also wanted to do this in Into the Woods, where each character would have a different genre that the rich would just always rap, and you know, uh, Jack would be a folk singer. Uh, that may, may not be exact, but that was the original thing. I'm really glad he didn't do that on either of these shows, and that's what keeps them timeless. But I'm really glad that he gets to do it here, because fuck, he's good at it. And it really reveals the fact that if Sondheim wanted to be a hit maker, <laughs> he could have easily done it. Like if he had wanted to just like unworthy of your love, for instance, like that song 
you know, the lyrics cannot be divorced from the people that are singing it in the show, which make it like you cannot use that as a general love song like they try to do in putting it together horribly because it's got lines like I would crawl belly deep through hell and I would come take you from your life and you'd be queen for me, not wife, queen to me, not wife. But um, it's like the, the, the melody of that song like that. He could have just fucking topped the charts with that if he wanted to, but he doesn't want to. He wants to tell stories. So there you go. The opening of Assassins. Everybody's got the right. So the shooting gallery, it establishes the theme. And it's cool because you meet all of the Assassins on a surface level. We don't exactly know who they are or what they did historically. We can kind of glean it from the clothes they're wearing. We got a hippie looking girl. We got a, uh, you know, we got a, what else we got? We got a guy in a Santa suit. Um, in the original, we have William Perry playing the proprietor, who was the boatman in Sunday in the Park with George, singing way down in the basement. Hey, pal, feeling blue. Don't know what to do. So I think it's best when the proprietor is just a fucking proprietor. If he's just a guy in suspender, like a carny. He's just a carny at the fucking carnival. He's not some ghost spirit beckoning these people towards evil. And it's a tall order, getting a guy who's a, a, a bass, <laughs> um, who sings the first song and then disappears. I'm pretty sure that William Perry doubled as some roles later on, but people like to make more of the proprietor than uh, originally intended. And my preference, you know, I'm not married to it or anything, but I like it when the proprietor is just the proprietor. Booth comes out, we, get, uh, we eventually go into the Ballad of Booth, which I put on my Sondheim on Adderall playlist because of how fucking perfect and smart and amazing it is. The whole thing. All the different sections of it. And this is where we meet the balladeer. It is so... I find it so interesting. Like, and perfect. For instance, like to use Patrick Cassidy in the original cast as the balladeer. He's an Aryan, fucking all-American, blonde hair, blue eyes, partridge family adjacent man. Uh, I actually saw him play Joseph and Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And he, we established the balladeer as like a Woody Guthrie whitewash. Uh, right? Like it's Woody. He's got a guitar and he's got suspenders and he's telling these American stories. Um, but, you know, by we, the time we get to another national anthem, he's he doesn't have the right answer. He's just espousing patriotic American exceptionalism, and it's just the other side of this coin. And one of the things they did in the show I saw last night, which was interesting, was the the the, the balladeer was played by a um, very young they them person of color. Okay, like it was, um, yeah, a, a, a high schooler more or less. They them. And it was interesting, like, because when they were singing these ballads, they, the whole vibe was like, look at this asshole. <laughs> when, when they were talking about Booth and Jalgaj and Gateau and singing about that, like, just sort of, uh, you know, huh, this is what they did and this is what they thought about that. And it added a level of sarcasm to the balladeer that was effective until they got to another national anthem where it, I felt like it makes less sense for somebody talking about the country being built on dreams and the mailman winning the lottery. That's where 
that concept kind of started to wobble, I thought. But this kid did a great job. This uh, kid that played the Valadier last night. And um, kind of got fucked up on the lyrics at one point. And I think it was because they dropped a prop <laughs> into the orchestra pit. Poor thing. And then um, like started singing verses, uh, earlier verses by accident. And uh, But great job. Great job overall. We got Victor Garber as Booth in the original. We know Victor Garber. He played Anthony in Sweeney Todd. He's going to be in the aforementioned Titanic film. James Cameron epic. He's going to be uh, not the captain, but the guy that, uh, you know, uh, built the ship or the, the guy that was like, yeah, fuck it. We don't need lifeboats. Yeah. When I played John Wilkes Booth um, during my performance where uh, they made me put I refused to shave my beard and just be a mustached only person because when I have a mustache only, I look like a, a meathead cop and I tried to convince them of this and they finally relented, but they made me put mascara in my beard to make it uh, darker, which is an interesting trick. It works pretty well. If you're a person that uses just for men or you're contemplating using just for men, Get some eyeshadow. Is it eyeshadow? Mascara? The, the 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 black thing with the thing. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, I put that in my be my beard, and it worked great. It was their idea. You walk around feeling kind of greasy, but anyway, that's whatever. Um, the cool thing about being an assassins and playing a historical figure is you get to do a lot of research, and you can let your performance be informed by the research, but you don't have to adhere to it exactly because you're not doing a docudrama, you're doing a play based on a character. And I got less into the conspiracy to kill Lincoln by Booth and his co-conspirators. And I got really into his escape route after the assassination because that is a fucking story. And I know that they give tours of the John Wilkes Booth escape route that he took you know, gunning it on horseback with a broken fucking leg and all the places that he stayed. And I felt like the reason that it was relevant to research that was because the big John Wilkes Booth scene is the end of the line for him, where they catch him and they set fire to the barn and he shoots himself. Um, and the, the crazy part about his escape route is he keeps staying... I guess he's got a couple of places where... It's arranged for him to stay. But then he's got a couple places where he just says, like, hi, can I stay here? He's got one, at least one instance where he kicks the person out. Black person. Says, like, get the fuck out of here. I'm going to sleep in your house. <laughs> and nearly all of these people that put John Wilkes Booth up for the night were then hanged for <laughs> assisting him. <laughs> Even the ones that didn't know who he was or what he had done. Isn't that interesting? I thought it was. The brilliance of the Ballad of Booth, the part that Booth sings, the country is not what it was, is the fact that we get deep into like a truly delicate, beautiful melody like that's simple and complex at the same time. It sounds period appropriate. It's like, it's prettier than any fucking song from Big River. <laughs> Or like any, you know, Civil War era song of the South. Like it's, it's, 
the 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 orchestrations, the melody, the chord, it's it's gorgeous and we're completely on board because I, like we are you know, Scarlett O'Hara, I'm about ready to be like, yeah, Lost Cause, the South. And then he uses the fucking N-word in the middle of this song that's so gorgeous. Jesus Christ. It's, it's so shocking. And it's the moment where you remember, oh, fuck. I don't like this guy. <laughs> It's so brave and so interesting. I get that it's weird to say that it's brave to write the N-word into your show. You know what's not brave? Omitting the N-word from the show. You know who omitted the N-word? <sighs> the show I saw last night. Now listen. I'm wading into territory I shouldn't wade into here because it's not my argument to make because I'm not black. Did you guys know that? Did you know that I'm a white man? Is that obvious from the way that uh, this whole thing has been going? Now, this is a show that says pretty bleak, horrible things all the way through. Talk about uh, trigger warning. We talk about women will be raped and disemboweled uh, and the society is de devouring its own anus and like uh, pretty horrific things and pretty naughty words. And so the original lyrics to the Ballad of Booth, uh, while we're in the middle of this beautiful ballad, he says, the union can never recover from that vulgar, high and mighty <laughs> lover, never. Now, I didn't just say the word. I know that it was bleeped. I just want you to know that even though I bleeped it, I didn't say the word here in my house. Uh, I do not relish saying that word. I did say it when I played John Wilkes Booth, I will tell you that. But it's not like something that I'm dying to say. So uh, don't cancel me and don't send the uh, thought police to my house. Now... Apart from the fact that that's lyrically, like, really well written, like I said, the fact that the word is there. Let me tell you what they sang in the show I saw last night. How the union can never recover from that vulgar, high and mighty emancipator, never. You tell me, should I call Musical Theater International and report these people? I know that I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, they can do whatever they want, but... So you've, you, you've pissed all over an internal rhyme, not an internal, you've pissed all over a, a, a really well-written piece of lyrics. And also you think that you're doing something really progressive by not having a truly racist character say the N-word. And it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I'm sorry. There's an argument to be made, and I'm totally open to it, that that word just should never be said even when quoting and even when portraying and the secret uh, anonymous society of uh, people that are addicted to a certain thing that I go to uh, when our muting was on zoom over the pandemic there was a controversy where one of our older members read an excerpt from something that he found inspiring and it was talking about how the how everybody was unified in a certain way and that nobody was outcast um, but it used the n-word and a list of slurs but like in the service of saying something progressive and uh it caused a firestorm in our little meeting and uh it caused uh, us to say a new thing at the beginning of the meeting about um using language and words that might people make people feel unsafe so i uh i 
I don't know. I don't know. I'm not black, but it seems like the past few decades of restrictions on even quoting the word, uh, it, 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 it feels like it's made it more violent when it does get used or quoted. And I think I remember the Mark Furman tapes uh, in the O.J. Simpson trial when I was a kid. I remember that, that that seemed like the first time that people started saying the N-word instead of the actual word. And um, I guess my question is, what's the difference? Like saying the N-word is kind of just a way of not saying the word. And I'm here not saying the word um, because I'm complying with, uh, you know, the general, uh, the culture uh, the request. How do I transition out of this horrific topic? Uh, anyway, they changed that line and I thought it was a, it was weird and a shame. They just should not have done assassins at this theater. Let's put it that way. When I did Assassins, um, one of the promotional photos was a picture of me in my uh, booth outfit with a gun under my chin about to commit suicide. And uh, I held onto that photo and used it uh, to text. Like if any, somebody texted me bad news or something I didn't want to hear, I would respond with that. Uh, and I still have it. Actually, I, I uh, deactivated Facebook, but I went in to grab some old photos and videos and I did find that. And uh, I wonder if that would be uh, considered a death threat or a suicide threat, uh, if I should not be sending that over the uh, over text. Anyway, we got How I Saved Roosevelt, uh, which is the note. that's also on my little playlist. It's all uh, the cool thing about that song is it's so it's all these bystanders talking about the ways that they saved Roosevelt, um, and that it's all historically accurate. It's all direct quotes from bystanders during. Uh, this uh, FDR giving a speech uh, and in Miami's beautiful Bayfront Park. And Giuseppe Zangara, a uh, five-foot-tall uh, Italian immigrant, is there. And um, so that song is all of the bystanders bragging about how they saved Roosevelt. And it's to the tune of El Capitan. Um So the, this is all... So what really happened is that this tiny little Italian man, five foot, five foot, five feet. He was aiming at the president elect Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But uh, then a standing ovation started. And because he's so small and he got there so late that he was so far back, he was like, shit, okay. I, so he got up on a chair and aimed again, but the chair was wobbly and he fucked up his aim and he hit uh, Mayor Anton Cermak of Chicago. Sondheim mentions uh, as a, just a cool little factoid, a little uh, uh, piece of information, coincidence, that uh, as we talked about, Teddy Roosevelt was shot and what saved him was that he had a 50-page speech in his pocket and that's where the bullet went. And FDR was saved because uh, everybody got up to cheer because his speech was so short. So one Roosevelt saved by being long-winded and the other Roosevelt saved by being uh, terse. So there you go. That's fun, right? The role of Giuseppe Zangara is very hard to cast because he hits some very high notes and he needs to be very tiny and he needs to be convincingly Italian. So you don't always get it right. Eddie Corbich in the original cast recording is fucking um, so good. Um, this guy last night was good. He was a highlight. He had those notes. People don't normally have those notes. They go into falsetto. This guy was belting those motherfucking notes. There's an Emma Goldman element to the show. She shows up in one scene uh, as she relates to Leon Jalgosh. 
who is the Polish, uh, you know, worker that uh, successfully murders, uh, assassinates, sorry, murders a toddler to little crime. <laughs> he successfully assassinates President William McKinley. In 1901, at the Great Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, uh, Emma Goldman doesn't really get her due in this scene. Emma Goldman, if you don't know, is the Lithuanian anarchist, um, who's the, the mother, really, of uh, anarchist political philosophy. She's got an abbreviated scene that doesn't really um, do her justice, nor does the musical Ragtime, in which she is a character. That doesn't really do her justice either. She's way more interesting than either portrayal. And the truth of the matter is, and this is, you know, they stay pretty true to this. Like, Jalgosh was just a fan. He was like a super Emma Goldman fan. And in real life, like, he asked her at one point, like, what books he should read. And he kept trying to get in with her and her friends. They kind of rejected him. because like, who the fuck are you? But he was inspired by her. She inspired his act. And um, after he killed the president, they arrested Emma Goldman for <laughs> planning the assassination. And they held her for two weeks. And, um, that sucks. But, uh, what do you expect from the Cossacks? Leon Jalgosh is a delicate character. And it's easy to fuck up Leon Jalgosh when you play him. Like, he cannot be a caricature. And people seem to always want to do this. The guy last night did. And I think that that sucks. Because he's the most tragic character. And let me tread lightly when I say this. I think if you had to choose... <laughs> Which assassination might be the most justified? It would be this one. And I don't like violence, guys. I don't think that anyone should kill anybody. But it's important to acknowledge that there is violence everywhere. And we should interrogate our motivations for which violence we're condemning and which violence we're ignoring. So, you know, some men have everything and some have none. Do, 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 do. Emma Goldman refused to condemn Leon Jalgage, which people around her were like, come, Emma, come on, man condemn him so that everyone will get off your back but she refused to do it but she also offered to nurse the wounded president because she's like he's just a human being can't mad at him Emma Goldman's a badass everybody let's make an Emma Goldman musical that's Emma Goldman focused let's stop having her be a side character can we do that I'm certainly not going to because um, maybe I should should I I'm gonna do it Let's have somebody that's already got a foot in the Broadway uh, scene do this so that we can get this thing seen. We got the gun song, which is a little barbershop quartet. Involves Jalgaj Booth, Gateau, and Sarah Jane Moore. The lie that it takes a lot of men to make a gun. When he says, I hate this gun, it's kind of, kind of a throwaway line. Because you think he's like, oh, he hates this gun. Maybe it's like a shoddy gun. He hates this gun because he's talking about all the men that it takes to make, all the people that die in the factory making the gun. The men at machines to turn the barrel, mow the trigger, shape the wheel. The gun song is a fun little comical song, but there's a couple of cool moments in it. Charles Gateau, played by Jonathan Hadari. Hattery? How do you, how do you say that? Google image Jonathan Hadari and you'll definitely recognize him. He shows up in lots of movies in the 90s and today. He says, what a wonder is a gun, what a versatile invention, first of all, when you have a gun. And he points the gun at the audience, and it's totally silent for like six seconds. Then he goes, everybody pays attention. 
That's pretty audacious. I mean, it's kind of a rule in the theory and in the theater that you do not point a gun at the audience. That that's not anything you should ever do. But it fucking works here. They didn't do it last night. Obviously, there were no guns. I say do it. Like we're watching a play about assassins. Disturb the comfortable, baby. Like we understand that we're not going to be killed in our seats watching this show. And if somebody did want to kill us, there'd be easier ways. Like in the lobby. <laughs> Would that be easier? You get what I mean. And then Sarah Jane Moore has her section, which is just so really funny. And she's rooting through her purse, can't find the gun. I got this really great gun. Shit, where is it? Oh, it's really great. Wait. And then the gun goes off by accident. Now let's talk about the real Sarah Jane Moore for a second. Because Sarah Jane Moore, of all the assassins, is the biggest what the fuck. Like, the biggest question mark. What is going on here? Other than madness. And if you were a conspiracy theorist, which I am not, really. I'm just sort of a uh, casual fan of them. <laughs> you'd, have, you'd have some things to go on with this, uh, the history of Sarah Jane Moore. So, uh, it's touched on in the play. She's got all these husbands, all these ex-husbands, all these children... And apparently she's, like, sending all of her children on airplanes away from her all the time by themselves. She's, like, a devout Christian. Then she becomes a, a devoutly Jewish. She's, like, a, she becomes a revolutionary, but then she, like, works for the FBI. She becomes obsessed with Patty Hearst, Patricia Hearst, the heiress that got kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. Um, and then, like, after that, the Hearst family, like, starts a poverty program and she volunteers to be their bookkeeper but she's an FBI, FBI informant like infiltrating it like what the fuck and then after she did it she said it had been like after she tries to kill Ford Gerald Ford unsuccessfully she said that it was like an expression of her anger <laughs> and then she's an exemplary prisoner and she's let out in 2007 and said like yeah whoops I was blinded by my radical beliefs I mean, there's a lot of dovetailing with the intelligence community there that makes you uh, raise your eyebrows. <laughs> and uh, as we all know, so the two uh, female assassins of the show are Sarah Jane Moore and Lynette Squeaky from, from the Manson family, which is a little more straightforward. She did it to, so there'd be a trial and Charlie would get to be a witness and he'd be on TV and he'd save the world. Uh, they both tried to assassinate Ford and like within two weeks of each other. It must have been insane. People must have thought the fucking world was ending. I wasn't alive yet. But the world didn't end. Still still rolling here. So for all you doomers out there that think that we're headed for some apocalypse, people have thought that before. And then it went on just fine. We got the Ballad of Jalgosh. It's catchy as fuck. Love the Ballad of Jalgosh. At the Temple of Music by the Tower of Light Between the Fountain of Abundance and the Court of Lilies At the Great Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo <laughs> In Buffalo It does the whole um, green grass grew all around method of You say more and more each time About where he did it in Buffalo um, My little sister lives in Buffalo now And her husband is a history teacher And he's uh, got a Buffalo obsession And so um, I think when I first met him and this came up, and he was talking about the assassination of McKinley. I was like, oh, you mean the one uh, by the Temple of Music, uh, and the Power of Light, and between the Fountain of Abundance and the Court of Lilies, at the Great Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo. And he may or may not have been impressed. Let's say he wasn't. Um, so, yeah, 
Head of the line kills him. Some men have everything and some have none. That's by design. Politically motivated assassination. Hashtag justice for Jalgaj. Ooh, that's got a nice ring to it. I didn't even plan that. Too bad it would be impossible for anyone to spell. Spelling this guy Jalgaj's name is, is rough. Sam Bick tried to kill Dick Nixon by crashing a plane into the White House. Didn't get the fucking plane off the ground. Got shot through the window of the plane. Because their brakes were on the fucking wheels and he didn't understand that. <laughs> Killed a pilot and a co-pilot and a few other people. He's got two lengthy monologues in Assassins where it's just him on stage talking. And not only are they really well written and interesting, but it's really interesting to do that in a musical. To have monologues right in the middle of it. Spoken monologues in the middle of a musical. And um, I did one of them at school at Locks, at the arts high school I went to. <laughs> I'm going to use this fucking bleep so many times in this episode. It's ridiculous. I just bleeped out this, the high school I went to. Who cares? I went to yeah, LA County. Um, I probably even said that already. It doesn't matter. Nobody's stalking me. And if they were, what the fuck does it matter what high school I went to? So yeah, it's a Neo Vaudeville, so you can do that. You can have a monologue in the middle. The interesting thing about Sam Bick is uh, he's one of a few uh, assassination attempts on the life of Richard Nixon. Everybody wanted to kill that guy because he was an asshole. There's a movie about Sam Bick called The Assassination of Richard Nixon, starring Sean Penn and Naomi Watts. And that movie is depressing. Let's, uh, let's put it that way. If you want to just be depressed and not really uh, have any thoughts or revelations beyond, boy, what a depressing story. Pick up The Assassination of Richard Nixon, starring Sean Penn. Now, when you play Squeaky Fromm, you can easily make that really annoying. People have done that. Like, uh, and I think that the trick is, and, and really with all these characters, you make it, you, it's, it's easy to make it too big. Especially in Squeaky Fromm's case, though, because the lines that she speaks are already so ridiculous. Like, especially all the Charlie Says stuff. Like, she has a scene with the fried chicken KFC where she just keeps, like, Charlie says blah, 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 blah. And it's always something completely unhinged and fucked up. And if you just rattle that off like you're an automaton, I think that's more effective than eating the scenery and demonstrating the craziness of what you're saying. And that's what a lot of actresses do when they play Squeaky From. Um, and it's what um, people do in, with the other characters. But for some reason, it's, like, more noticeable with Squeaky From the scenery chewing and it kind of fucks it up the original squeaky from was the great annie golden who pops up in orange is the new black if you uh watch that show i love orange is the new black i was on board the whole time i never got sick of it i never fell off on orange is the new black it went places and i was uh on board the whole way she's the mute woman who doesn't say anything on the whole first season and then on the last on the season finale of uh, season one she like sings a christmas song because she's Annie Goldman and she sings. And she has a very unique voice that sounds crazy, which is why she sounds so great on Unworthy of Your Love, which she sings with Greg German from Allie McBeal, who plays John Hinckley. Yeah, Unworthy of Your Love, it's gorgeous and frightening, um, you know, for the reasons we talked about earlier. Interesting, like the orchestration of that too does a cool thing where on John's verse, it sounds like mid-80s uh what would you call that uh new wave just the orchestration of it the the synthesizer on the 
And then once Squeaky Fromm gets involved, we add some strings and it sounds like a 70s fucking Earth, Wind, and Fire thing. Not Earth, Wind, and Fire. You get where I'm going with that. The Ballad of Gateau is a great song also. It only really works if you reserve your madness when you're playing Gateau. There's a tendency to make him just an over-the-top loon the entire show. And the guy last night did do this. He was like really fucking cartoonish, like way above everybody else on stage. And um, that song is truly disturbing if Gateau throughout like seems like, okay, this guy is like super positive, super friendly. Like he's a bit uh, grandiose and he's grandstanding about all of the jobs that he's had. But if they're on the, uh, at the scaffold, like before he's hanged, if that's where he really fucking loses it, it's great. <laughs> so um, there you go, folks. I, uh, I'm not a director, I should tell you that. I seem to have a lot of opinions here but on how the show should be done. But uh, I, I'm only interested in directing children's theater. And I don't imagine that there will ever be a children's production of Assassins because that would be um, wrong. In the Ballad of Gateau, he uses the actual words of Charles J. Gateau in the lyrics. He read a little poem that he wrote <laughs> at his execution called I Am Going to the Lordy. Sondheim says this is one of only two, so two times that he set someone else's lyrics to music. The other was Shakespeare. And the Frogs, the song Fear No More, he used a little bit from Cymbeline, Shakespeare's Cymbeline. Now here's a direct quote of what Charles J. Gateau said before he read his poem. I am going to read some verses which are intended to indicate my feelings at the moment of leaving this world. If set to music, they may be rendered very effective. The idea is that, a, that of a child babbling to his mama and papa. I wrote it this morning at about 10 o'clock. You don't get content like that from assassins anymore. I think they hide the manifestos and artwork of the assassins, uh, for better or worse. I don't have an opinion on that. Believe it or not, I don't have an opinion on that topic. I think it's funny that, yeah, he's... Because he asked for an orchestra and they denied that request. And so then he's saying, like, this would be better if there were music. And I wrote it and this is what I meant to <laughs> do with this piece. <laughs> it's funny. You get to another national anthem after the second Bic monologue and the whole where's my prize thing is closest that we're gonna come to a unifying reason or excuse uh, for why everyone is doing this. But like we said, everyone does it for a different reason and some do it for no reason at all, which is even scarier. And um, when Lee Wilkoff, who plays Sam Bick, screams, nobody would listen on the original cast recording. Chills, baby really good and then finally or almost finally we get that Lee Harvey Oswald scene and here's one thing I learned first of all a nice little treat in the original cast recording of assassins is there's a track that there's no singing it's just the Lee Harvey Oswald scene John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald, and it's basically, if you don't know, it's uh, John Wilkes Booth appearing to Lee Harvey Oswald in the Texas Books Depository as a sort of apparition, convincing him not to commit suicide and to shoot the president instead. 
Now, one of the challenges of being cast as John Wilkes Booth later in life, when you grew up with an album of assassins that you worshipped, and you may or may not have spoken along with that scene in the exact cadence that Victor Garber delivers all those lines, it's hard to not do that when you are then tasked with playing the part. It's hard to not take your line readings the way that you memorized Victor Garber doing them. And so that was hard for me. One thing I learned with this scene, though, is that you have to fucking power through it because it is long. And there's a tendency, I think, when it doesn't work, when the scene is bad, it's because John Wilkes Booth, or the actor playing Booth, is, is uh, making a meal of some of these lines and moments. And it doesn't work. Like, it has to... You gotta keep the motor running. You can't spend too much time dwelling on things. It's just my opinion there. I mean, it's arguably too long, the way that it's written, especially when the other assassins come out and there's the one, two, three, four, five, like everybody's saying one line after another, which is practically the same thing. It gets a little long. Now, let's talk briefly, because we are now in the Lee Harvey Oswald scene. Let's talk about conspiracy theories. I am not a devoted Kennedy assassination conspiracy theorist. I enjoy the film JFK. I enjoy, if someone's talking about it in a way that is interesting and articulate and not like breathless and annoying, I'm down to hear it, a conspiracy theory about this or about really anything. Um, I'm, it's, I'm curious about them, okay? But people that are so bought into them with certainty, I find very irritating, especially more recent ones like COVID and then the, you know, the QAnon bullshit. Like it's, I find that stuff exhausting and I'm not even interested in seeing a documentary about it uh, that's on HBO. Like I just like, okay, shut the fuck up. However, I also find it irritating and exhausting when uh, people dismiss all conspiracy theories out of hand and call them dangerous. Some are, some aren't. Case by case. There's a website called Fatherly, which, um, you know, as a uh, somebody that was co-parenting uh, as an out-of-wedlock stepfather for many years, um, I was I would read from time to time. After the Jeffrey Epstein thing, there was an article in that magazine saying, "Here are the ways in which conspiracy theories about Jeffrey Epstein's suicide are damaging to children." And I found it disappointing because I, I, I did like the offerings of that magazine usually, but I thought that was pretty ridiculous. <laughs> Look, do I put 100% of my faith in the Warren Report or the 9-11 Commission? No, I do not. Do I know exactly what actually happened in either case? Or what things these entities are leaving out? No, I do not. Of course not. Do I think it's impossible that uh, American government and the intelligence community could perpetrate such things on citizens or on a president? No, I don't. Do I think it's implausible that so many people could keep these kinds of secrets for so long? Sure, of course I do. Do I believe that Occam's razor is a thing? That the most likely uh, reason is the reason or the, the one that requires the least uh, assumptions? Yes, I do. But do I think it's more plausible, for instance, that somebody broke into Epstein's cell and killed Epstein instead of Epstein killing himself. Yeah, 
Do I think it's peculiar that George H.W. Bush was working as a CIA operative in the early 60s and was in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963 and doesn't remember what he was doing in Dallas on that day? On a day when everybody in the country remembers what they were doing and won't stop fucking telling you about it 50 goddamn years later. Yeah, I think that's a little peculiar. But I, uh, I'm not married to any counter-narratives. I'm a firm believer in uncertainty. I stand with Alan Watts and the wisdom of insecurity. So since I don't believe there are any definite answers to these questions, I enjoy hearing the two sides debate as long as they're not annoying. But um, I don't want to hear anyone who's too certain try to debate. And that's what I have to say, folks, about the Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories. <sighs> There's a song called Something Just Broke, which is not on the original cast recording, but they added it a couple years later when they did the show in London. I get the reason for this song, but please cut it out. I don't like it. It's not that it's a bad song. I mean, it's not a great song, honestly. It's an okay song. It ruins the pacing. It's Sam Mendes' fault that this, you know, he was directing it in London in 92 and he threw it in and Sam Mendes uh, made the American Beauty and all that shit. Uh, the, the problem with this song is like, it's expressing something we already know. That song is, it's, we finally sort of get the point of view of the, not the assassins, but the people that are affected by the assassination. And it's John Wideman as a 17 year old. It's not actually him as a 17, but it's a bunch of people, common people being like, oh, this is where I was when I heard this. And I, something just broke. And oh my gosh. So it's expressing something that has already been told. And the, 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 this show is concerned with telling the other side. And I mean, whether or not it's worth telling that side, it just, it ruins the flow. It makes the show longer than it should be without an intermission, that's for sure. And I think that it's cool to go straight from the gunshot from Oswald in the Texas Books Depository right into the finale, which is like a victory song of all the assassins. That's what I think. Okay. Um, we're uh, coming in for the close here, talking about assassins. I don't know if there's anything uh, in particular that I left out. One thing um, I heard, oh, these are two little factoids, by the way, and I don't have these at my fingertips. I just remember reading these over the years, so I cannot confirm the veracity of either statement or either anecdote. Um, I think that at one point Sondheim or somebody said that the failure on Broadway of Assassins or the, you know, the fact that it was not a hit on Broadway may have been due to the fact that we were in the middle of the first Gulf War and that people were not interested in reflecting on the darker parts of America. I don't know, man. I mean, I was a, I was a little tyke in 1991. I was eight years old, so I don't know what the uh, zeitgeist or the vibe was like back then, but that seems weird. That seems like a weird rationalization. That seems like uh, it's along the lines with uh, that Ben Stiller movie, The Heartbreak Kid. They said that, that the reason that that terrible movie didn't hit with audiences was because some very popular video game came out the same week or something. <laughs> um, 
I think that it probably didn't hit because uh, it was two before its time and uh, people are dumb. Not you people, though. Not you people listening to Sondheim on Adderall over an hour into uh, this episode about the assassins. You people are fucking geniuses. Thank you for your continued genius. Um, another anecdote is uh, while during the rehearsal process, and I think I read this in the Meryl Seacrest book about Sondheim that came out while I was in high school, which I don't have a copy of, and I wasn't like interested enough to get another copy of for this podcast. Sorry. Um, during the rehearsal process, apparently Mandy Patinkin, the very talented asshole, um, visited the theater while they were rehearsing, and um, he sat close to the front with a notebook and took notes because it's like a thing that he liked to do and Sondheim yelled at him <laughs> he's saying what the fuck is your problem why would you do that to these actors why would you do that to Victor Garber and yeah Mandy like you're a Broadway legend do you think anybody wants to rehearse the show with you sitting near the front writing in a fucking notebook who the fuck are you Nobody should do that, first of all, even if they're uh, just Joe Blow. But, yeah, Mandy Patinka needs to get his shit together before it's too late. <laughs> Maybe he has. Maybe he's a very nice man now. I certainly don't like his uh, TikTok stream. Uh, but, uh, whatever. Whatever. So, um, Sondheim says that assassins... You know, he doesn't have a favorite of any of his shows. Although he does say in Six by Sondheim, the HBO documentary, which we're going to talk about in the bonus episode, he does say that Sunday in the Park with George may be his favorite if he was able to, if he had to choose one just because of the audacity of it. But he says that this show, Assassins, comes closest to his expectations of what he thought it would be at first. Like when it comes to where you started and where you finished. Like he, his vision came to light very closely in this he also says except for a tiny little section the family section the i envy you where your family he, he doesn't like that section that much he thinks that uh it makes you too aware of the songwriter and it's too academic whatever i think it's fine but he doesn't like it he thinks the show is perfect and he's ready to argue that with anybody me too sondheim Assassins is perfect. Don't, uh, don't try, don't, uh, don't add a vision to, to the Assassins directors. And let me just say real quick, I, I, the, everybody that I worked with on this show, in the place that I worked with them on it, were such awesome people, and it was such a fun experience. But one thing that came to light is I realized I didn't know until I invited people to see the show because I was an actor on stage just doing my thing. I didn't know that they had added a slideshow at the end during something just broke. Um, that was a, like a, it was a little slideshow of starting with all of the assassinations that we had seen in the show and then adding more recent ones, but actually going beyond assassinations to talk about, you know, Columbine, Pulse Nightclub, Sandy Hook, and uh, I don't think Las Vegas had happened yet, which is the biggest mass shooting in history and one that we have the least information about somehow. 
But, um, so it had this collage of mass shootings, and then the last image was an American eagle with a tear in its eye. And it's interesting being an actor in a show because if you're in a, if you choose to do a show and I'm not like a career actor, I don't really, you know, I only choose shows that I really like and that I want to be a part of like this one. Like I saw this one was holding audition. So I jumped at the chance. If they were casting Susical the musical down the street from my house, I would not audition for it uh, because I'm not interested. And I get that that makes me a snob. Go fuck yourself. But it's funny how as an actor, you are part of a collaborative process, kind of, but things like that can happen and there's not really anything you can do about it. <laughs> like you, you, you invite somebody to a show and then it has a slideshow like that and now you're sort of like signed on to a creative experience um, with a, you know, something like that in it. Which is fine, and I, I probably sound like a hypocrite because I, I was very uh, opinionated about, uh, for instance, like, uh, what's his name, Ron Field and Merrily Roll Along being mad about the costumes, or Mandy Patinkin, the actor, being mad about uh, the, uh, you know, the trajectory. Like, it's like, yeah, do your job, shut the fuck up. Which I did, you know, I didn't, like, lobby to take <laughs> to have that slideshow removed. But I'm just saying it's interesting. It's interesting, um, it's interesting. And that's all I have to say about that. Uh, oh shit. I just realized that I said that I was gonna talk about bloody bloody Andrew Jackson, but it seems like it's a weird out of place thing to do now here at the end. Anyway, very briefly, there's a musical called Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, uh, made by a guy named uh, Michael Friedman who is now passed, is deceased. Is it Michael Friedman? I don't wanna get that fucking name wrong. I don't want to say the wrong name of dead people. Can I check real quick? Anybody, Andrew? Yeah, Michael Friedman. And a book written by Alex Timbers. Um, and so it's like a comedic musical with some really good songs, I think, in it. And what I liked about it when I first heard it was the fact that it's uh, a musical about populism. Populism, yeah, yeah. And it uses this sort of like mindless pop punk Green Day type music for all of its songs, which is like, it just seems like that's a really good marriage of concept and uh, content and form. Like if you want to talk about dummies that all believe some dumb thing, using Green Day style music is a good way to go. Now I revisited Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson recently and since a sort of shift in my political ideology, and I'm less appreciative of the concept of the show because I kind of, I, I, I am now closer to thinking that populism is a good thing, that not all populism is people at a Trump rally or dumb farmers that are following Andrew Jackson and think that we should kill all the Native Americans on the land. Like there's populism uh, really is just direct democracy and it's a, something that was crushed early on during the Gilded Age and to mock the idea of populism in a blanket sort of way, like you're an idiot if you're a populist or, you know, populism is just a group of idiots. It's an oversimplification that I think serves uh, the powerful elite. So there you go. Who gives a fuck what I think? Great songs though, very catchy. This concludes our episode.
of assassins. Now, that bonus episode is coming out. Oh, sorry, Jesus, dropping things. That bonus episode is coming out maybe later this week, maybe next week. It depends on where I am with my finals, ladies and gentlemen. The end of this season of Suntime on Adderall is coinciding directly with my finals in uh, at school. So um, once I'm done with both, I'm going to really devote some time to rewriting my original musical. Which is none of your fucking business, podcast audience. Let's uh, end this. Let's get uh, with... Uh, I'm going to end this with a uh, Sondheim quote. I am going off the mic now. I am so glad. I am going off the mic now. I am so glad. I have talked about assassins and I'm fucking tired. I have things to do now. Thank you, folks, for listening. We'll see you. Thank you for listening to this season. Hey, this concludes season one of Sondheim on Adderall. Stay tuned for a bonus episode. And maybe we'll see you for season two. Fuck, maybe we won't. Who knows? Who knows? Could be. Who knows? Anti-certainty. Shut the fuck up. End the show. I'm ending the show. Bye. (laughs) Bye.